what's happening in the canine industry. For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, Glenn. Yes, Pat. I can't help but notice you have a new puppy out there. I do have a new puppy. Have you thought about getting some expert advice on how to raise that puppy? Ouch. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it just happens that we do have an expert as part of our sponsor group. Really? Yeah, Dan Croft Canine. Do they run puppy class? They run amazing puppy classes. What what on earth do they do there? They've got whole ranges of foundation for puppy school. So they're running a complete socialization package and they're doing a whole range of different levels for puppies. And that's what they really wanted to emphasize is that they are experts in puppy raising and training. Where are they experts in puppy raising and training? In Toronto, Canada. Whoa. So if you were in Toronto, Canada, yep. and you had a friend, a client, a relative, just anybody who was getting a puppy mm-hmm. and you wanted to set that puppy up for success, yep, you could probably send them to Dancroft, can I? If I was over in Toronto, Canada with my new little Rottweiler puppy, Mando, I would go over, and I'm, I swear this, I would go over and I would do the socialization program with them. Great I idea. love what they're doing. Have you seen their setup online? Oh, amazing. Fantastic. Amazing. They had a tire with a medicine ball with a pit bull doing a drop stay on top of it. My goodness. Amongst a dozen other dogs that were doing all similar things, like on BOSU balls and all sorts of things. My goodness. It was great. Fantastic. Unbelievable. Yeah. Hey, speaking of your puppy, mm-hmm. what's going on with his nutrition? Couldn't go past canine tuticles. Supplemented up. Supplemented up to the help. My goodness. Yeah. So he should have arms like Arnold Schwarzenegger by the time we're finished. Where did you get those canine suticles from? From Narelle Cook. Narelle Cook. How, yeah. do, you, how do you know her? <laughs> <laughs> Funny that she's got the same last name as me. Yeah. The supplier is very local. Absolutely. Canine suticles, but Ca- legit, it's probably the best supplements available. Best for supplements dog. available, human grade, gone through the absolute rigorous testing program. I mean, Narelle's got stat sheets on it and everything like that on demand, so... People want to know what they're actually putting into their dog's body supplement-wise. They can reach out to her and she's got all the facts and figures before she even put it down as a physical product. She spent years and years researching it before it was actually come to market. So great stuff. Yes, the puppy's definitely on it. All our dogs are on it. And there's a shit ton of people around Australia and New Zealand who are taking canine suticles and the feedback is astronomical. Amazing. Yep. Do you plan on taking Mando on your motorbike? If I did, you know who I'd have to go to, don't you? You'd have to get one of those Rowdy Hound boxes. Rowdy Hound dog kennels. Yeah. From Horny George. George Kittridge himself. You'd have to get one of those Rowdy Hound dog kennels to go on the back of your motorbike. How good is his social media? It's the best. Yeah. I love watching the dogs cruise around motorbikes. I think it's one of the coolest things ever. They've got their little doggles on. Yeah. You know, like we talk about living the best life. Well, for people who are motorcyclists, they can do both. I'm serious about thinking about getting one, but then I've got to train a – I don't know if having a Rottweiler on the back of a bike is going to be a great <laughs> idea. Your sport but, bike. <laughs> but, well, uh, I think you should do it. Maybe one day when I've got a smaller mid-sized dog, uh, I would get a Rowdy Hound dog kennel and mm. I could travel around. So I could not only enjoy the company of my dog, which hundreds of people seem to be doing across the United States of America, and I could motorcycle at the same time. So Amazing. two things that are very dear to my heart, Coming together. All right. This ad's going on for a long time. Mm. I need to get out of here and go and train some dogs. Yeah. But do you know where I got the equipment that I'm going to use to train those dogs? The goat. 
the goat. The Billy Goat's gruff. Ein's a wiener. <laughs> the wiener himself. Einswick <laughs> dog quip. Yeah. If you're not buying all your dog training gear from them, yep. I don't know where you're fucking getting it from. Well, if not from Thurman, Einswick dog quip, the Ein's a wiener. How the hell does he sell anything being such a grumpy old bastard? He's online now. He's got a website. That's you right. Can, they don't have to deal with him. You correct. can actually buy things <laughs> off the website. You can actually do it now. Yep. Einswickdogquip.com.au yep. or just .com. Probably one of them. I don't it's know. One of them. It just, we'll put try it out. Yeah, put it, you, yeah. You'll click. You'll find a link. You'll buy some stuff. <laughs>
No. So what we do to kind of counter that now, first part of that answer is does training bleed over into the test? In some things, yes. You'll see some of the training cues or reinforcement history for something will show itself in that test. Now, with that said, what we do is we do warm-ups before we even do the test in that warm-up sessions kind of reconfigures like this game is different. Okay. Yeah. So that's how you can get yourself, your dog used to going, I don't need permission to go to the bucket. Mm -hmm. I can go there. And buckets are cool because there's usually a reward item there. So that kind of loosens the constraints of the dog. Later on in the test, depending on the test, I'll say one of the biggest tests that we call it the distracting pointing cue test. And that test is basically you're showing the dog, hey, I'm putting your thing that you want, food or toy, whatever it is, under this bucket on, let's say, the left side. But I'm going to point to the right side. Which one do they go for? The one that they know where the item they want is, or are they going to go to your gestural communication? Are they going to go to your point? So some dogs that have had significant... Um, like directional Directional training may go there. But what's kind of cool is because it, it's there's a certain number of repetitions that you do for these tests. Mm. Some dogs realize this isn't working and you'll see them switch, uh, you know, plans like, mm -hmm. okay, I'm stopping this following your gesture because I really know it's over here. And as soon as they go to that side, they get their item. So you'll see the dog go, Oh, okay. I got it now. And that's fun. And this is all information because so the training aspect that you bring up that shows itself is good information to know. Mm. Oh, hey, if I'm going to go do something that requires the dog to be more independent, I might have a struggle because it uses so much gestural information from me. And I always tell everybody, this isn't about right or wrong. This isn't about, it's about information. It's identity, isn't it? Who yeah. you are and what you're capable of doing. How you learn. Mm. You know, all of us learn differently. So, so do the dogs. And your training can interfere with that. Prior experience can show itself, and that is relevant. Mm. And I need to know that depending on whatever it is I'm doing with my dog. So that's why these tests are super helpful. When we did these tests and these tests were being designed, it started off with uh, assistance dogs. And they did a lot of dogs this way. And then all of a sudden, when before I got involved, but then it really ramped up, it, we started doing working dogs. So it started off with Marine Corps working dogs. They were the first ones to do it. And then when I was, you know, we did it with our Navy SEAL dogs. And I started doing it with law enforcement dogs and so forth. We did the exact same test. Though what I was desiring or looking for as far as the dog score was complete opposite of the assistance dogs. Mm. The assistance dogs, they were looking for a lot of collaboration, high memory. I was looking for high inference, lower memory. But what was amazing was we were doing the exact same test, seeking the different, let's say, scores, but our percentage of our dogs that performed better, the percentages on their side and our side, improvement was the same. Mm -hmm. Reduction in training time was also the same. Mm. So that was super cool to see that even though they were diametrically opposite as far as what we were going for, the tests were valid. They gave us great information and allowed us to be better about how we communicate and train, mm. and who, whether it was good or not. Who designed those tests? So they're actually designed out of toddler psychological and learning strategy tests. Yeah, right. And it's part of language development. How do young children take on language, and how do they learn from us? And it starts off with gestural and things like that. So you could do a lot with your, your young son now, mm -hmm. where this simple things like you could look a direction... And he's going to mimic you. He's mm -hmm. going to, because he doesn't, he doesn't know why, but 
but that's what he should do. Well, dogs have this same level of communication like we do. Yeah. And it's kind of the premise of language development in humans. And out of all the species out there, dogs are the ones that have this unique skill. And it was kind of funny because uh, right before you got in here, Glenn and I were watching a episode on Netflix on animal intelligence. Mm. And this comes up. They talk about, you know, how dogs out of all the species on the planet, the one that communicates to us best is dogs. Yeah. Yeah. I was saying that it's really good. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned that because I do want to do a podcast on it in my son. He's like 14 months old. He had his first tantrum the other day where it was really behavioral, you know, because kids cry and sure. they get upset and whatever. But it was very much like this is because I'm angry and I want something from it, right? Mm -hmm. Like it was, you know, behavioral manipulation. It was the first time you ever did it. And it was fascinating to me. Like yeah. as that sort of is coming online uh -huh. and he's, you know, 14 months. So that's probably somewhere around the sort of cognition of a dog, yes. right? It's a, that's a similar sort of phase. Mm -hmm. You know, he's my second son and, and like I love this phase in because it's where you can start to really teach him stuff, Yeah, right? He's starting to beyond sort of figuring out walking and crawling that they teach themselves. But now they're at a point, he's at a point where I can start to teach him things and we can play games together. And he's, he's shocked when I trick him and, and yeah. stuff like that, right? It's really fun. And you brought in a, another major point, which is, so in a human, you're in that really good, the brain is a lump of clay mm -hmm. and you can do a lot with it. And one of the aspects of cognition that we were you know, learning was started off, okay, what does this tell us? Then we, then I say we, I'm, I'm just using we as a broad term. The researchers said, well, how young can we go? And what does it tell us? So there's puppy cognition that exists now. Dr. Emily Bray Cohen, she really does a lot of it now. Her and Dr. Evan McLean at University in Arizona, they came up with a, a series of battery tests. It takes about three days. And I share this now, too, with the, the dog world. But with the puppies, what we could see was between six, eight weeks or so, mostly a little bit earlier. So let's say six weeks, six weeks to 12 to 14 weeks was your window. So if this dog was stronger in memory or stronger in inference and you desired the opposite, this age range was the time that you could possibly increase the other that you wanted mm, stronger. This was the only window you had. Yeah, right. So that was real helpful. So now they're in phase three, which is how much of this is hereditary. Yeah. So that's the super cool thing that this, the next phase is like, can we even predict this by the genes? Mm. You know, can you breed a strong inference with a strong inference and how guaranteed are you to get all inferences? You know, I don't think it'll ever be that cut and dry, but mm. I, I wonder if the percentages are in your favor in a litter to get to that. It's super interesting you say that. Yeah, you know, I'm constantly coaching people through raising puppies and there's a couple of people close to me that have puppies at the moment. And I know that the way that I train, the way I like to train can cause a dog to be a little bit inwardly focused. That, mm -hmm. that certainly can be the case. So what I have been doing is with people that get puppies, I do a lot of very indirect reward stuff, mm -hmm. very young to counter what I know I'm going to do later on. For sure. And I haven't yet, since I've been sort of consciously doing that, yeah. I haven't yet seen that come to fruition. You know, like I haven't seen what effect it has, but I think it aligns with sort of what you're saying then. I think that'll be interesting to keep an eye on. And you're doing those things that you're bringing up at that critical time yeah. where there's really good moldable brain cells to work with. Yeah. And you are laying the groundwork as you, what your attempt to do is to make your life easier downstream as a dog gets older. Like, mm. And they've brought this up in odor a lot too. They've been various hypotheses about 
hey, if we introduce odor to a young puppy at this age, will it be better later on with this one? It's still a mixed bag because there's various specific things they were looking at. Will the dog just remember it? Like if we introduce it to puppies at, you know, X amount of weeks old and then don't show it to them again until they're eight or nine months old, do they remember it? Mm. And that's been kind of debated and, uh, and there's still things to learn. What we can see, though, is it's actually more about teaching the dog the relevance of an odor and how to look for it at those younger ages. Mm -hmm. Because later on, when that does become the job, they seem to show a better understanding of the task because of that foundation you did early on. Mm. So it's not so much the particular odor that mattered. Is this that you've taught the term? Yeah, the term I use is vocabulary. I'm teaching the ABCs, one, two, threes. This may not be the odor I'm going to use, but I'm teaching you, hey, air currents and temperatures and things, strategies to go find this. And finding this is fun is a major factor that works really well younger. So a ton to learn, which is a lot of fun. It's interesting, all those really cool studies like that, but very often they just sort of confirm that the people that are doing it right are doing it right for a scientific reason. But like, yeah, people, you know, everybody in the detection space you know, you see it online, someone gets a new young dog and they're immediately like imprinting odors and stuff. And you're like, Hey, teach that dog to hunt. Like, yeah, yeah. doesn't matter that what he's smelling, like get him to find stuff, you know, cause everybody knows that. Yeah. But that now there's some evidence showing that that is the right thing to do. And that brings up, which is kind of funny that you, you, that's a great thing to bring in. So remember the podcast we did with me, you and Jerry Bradshaw, mm. right? And Jerry's biggest point was hunting. Hunting mm. was super important. Glenn and I were talking earlier. It's, I 100% agree. There was the assumption because of, uh, and it's cool because Jerry and I got to spend time, you know, probably a few months ago together and we just started shooting the shit and, you know, we got even more into it. Mm -hmm. But the aspect that he was referring to in many cases was those that just free shape, exactly talking about, hey, we're just using a box, we're going to click and we're going to do this kind of stuff. And there's no hunting involved. Mm. And the premise of what he brings up is no, you can't forget that a hundred percent agree. Yeah. As you guys got to see in the lecture I do hunting, I build in that step zero of the training process that I do. So it's a developmental stage. So that way, when I do go to, I'm teaching you this odor, I've already done that hunting work. Mm-hmm. So then later on, once I've taught the odor, now we're going to put those two worlds together versus always trying to do them at the start, because I may not know with that dog, what is it it's picking up? So mm-hmm. I just, it's just a cleaner, you know, approach for me to say, I'm going to do hunting, get hunting and searching really good. And then now I'm going to teach you this odor. And then now I'm going to teach you to hunt for this odor. Mm. You know, you can't, you can do it in other ways. I've just seen, and then like you said, some of the science that backs certain things, the better clarity we have, the better the dog's going to do. If we mix things together, you know, we end up combining three steps and we think it's one you don't always know what did the dog pick up in that session? Was it this thing? Mm. Was it the hunt? What, you know, what was the thing that motivated the dog? Was it its behavior right before it found odor? Did they do something right as it was leaving odor? You know, so the cleaner and the more clear I can do it is the biggest thing I try to share with people is, you know, we got to break it down in the very beginning and just to some smaller steps, Mm -hmm. but those smaller steps really pay off because now when it, it's like a snowball, you know, it's, 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 you know, I'm pushing this really, it's a really big snowball. It's really hard to push at first, but once it gets rolling, boom, off it goes. Yeah. So that was a fun conversation, you know, and, and I had a similar one to this with Jerry a little while ago in that 
for us that teach, especially when you teach to an, an unseen audience, right? Mm-hmm. So like right now we're sitting here shooting the shit into microphones, yeah. but you don't know who's listening and you don't know the skill level of the people that are listening. And for a long time, me and others, especially sort of in the Nipopo community, mm-hmm. were really carrying on about the role of the click and release, yeah. right? Yep. The sort of terminal marker to come back to me for reinforcement. And we spoke about that a lot because we're trying to convey the message. Mm-hmm. And the way that I ha- always spoke about it was because I used to do a lot of paying in behavior and still do, mm-hmm. but we sort of carry on about the click and release because we're trying to spread the word. Like it works too, guys, but not that the other doesn't or that you shouldn't do the other. Correct. But the way that we teach is like, you know, you've got to do the thing and and we talk about that. And so people who have experience listen and say, oh, I do a lot of paying in position or, you know, in, mm-hmm. uh, in detection terms, I pay at the source and all that, right? I'll give that thing that those guys are saying a bit of a try and they don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. They remain with some of what they're doing and they end up with this really beautiful balanced approach and it works magically. It's like the girl from the old El Paso ad. Why not both? Yeah. Well, that's the thing. And so (laughs) as teachers, we assume that that's how our knowledge will be received. But then it sometimes is if someone's coming in and they've only listened to us yeah. mm-hmm. and they only hear me talk about, oh, I love the, I love the indirect, like the click and release. I love doing that. And then they're like, oh, well, that's what you do. And, and they, they forget they, about all the other cues. Well, well but it. they don't forget. They don't know yet. Right. Yeah. That's, that's where okay. it becomes trouble. Yep. Right. Okay. And yep. so yep. then, yep. You, you know, there were a whole bunch of dogs that were like having issues staying in position. And then people like Jerry, who sort of speaks about the opposite is yeah. like, he's more of the pay. Like, and he does just as much clicking and releasing Correct. as all of us, I but know. he talks about the other. And it's like, we all have our points that we put across mm-hmm. and it's important that people listen to both because I can't talk about everything, you know, and you sort of decide like, this is the topic. This is the thing I want to talk about. I was talking about something uh, with one of the army guys about you the other day. And they were like, oh, you know, cause he, like, he's a scent guy. I was like, that dude knows as much about bite work as anybody else. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. he's, but that's what he's chosen to teach, right? Correct. Like that's his area. I find myself constantly thinking I need to remind people of that, that there's a lot to this. And just because me or you or anybody else says this is a really good way. That is a really good way, but there are other ways and actually a bit of a fusion of them all can sometimes be really good. You brought up one of the biggest lessons I learned probably in the past three years, which was I got very passionate about sharing the information about the use of a condition reinforcer marker, especially terminal and and rewarding back at me and all the advantages. And I never brought up enough that I also still will pay at source depending on a condition because I was so excited and passionate about that one point. Right. So all of a sudden I found myself in this defensive position of all of a sudden I'm the marker guy. That's all I do. (laughs) And I was like, no. And then again, that was one of the highlights for when we had that conversation with, with Jerry was that was where I kind of realized it. I was like, Oh wait, they think that's all I do. Yeah. And I went through that and it was funny because Fast forwarding from there, I'm doing a Q&A session on, I think it was just a Facebook Live thing with me, Michael, Ellis, and Natalie. And of course that came up, which was, what is Michael known for? You know, he's heavy with the markers. Yeah. And, you know, he had fun bringing in the detection because he goes, well, of course you're going to do both. Because just like obedience, if you're teaching a stay position, you don't always call the dog to you and you don't always go back because... If you did the always, there's going to be anticipatory behaviors related to that. So you balance it out between the two things, and that's what keeps the strength of the behavior. But what happens is, like you just said, we get very passionate about 
hey, this is what I love doing. This is a new cool technique. Yeah. I've really embraced it. And then all of a sudden the listeners or people who view your YouTube channels or whatever see the one message and you're yeah. like, oh, wait, well, I can be better to balance that. And because you're trying to move the needle yeah. on like where it is, you're like, oh, if we just did a bit more, so I'll just talk about that. But we don't realize there's people who don't know the other and they're yeah. like, just hear that. Yeah. But you're right in what you said before, Pat. There's a lot of times where we've been using that in pragmatic training and not labeling it or not really talking about it. And it may be a little bit more muddy because I think back into years where we were doing work with training and we were always doing some sort of cue and release or something like that. Like we were doing different markers and different behaviors to it. But sometimes it was probably muddier than what we would have liked it to have been. I think what happened more recently when Bart had more influence and, you know, yourself and other trainers sort of got onto the scene was it cleaned it up a lot. Mm -hmm. Like it defined it more and it isolated it into categories where you could explain it more and detail it more and polish it up. And I think you're right. I think what people thought is, oh, now it's an all or nothing. Yeah. Instead of going, oh, but there's multiples. Like you're one or the the other. Right. And then they didn't realize that you've got duration markers and you've got markers where you can terminate on the behavior and return. There's a lot of different things that people could have chosen from. Even with the NDTF for argument's sake, there was a few people within that that sort of said, well, now we can't release our dogs anymore. And I said, no, no, you still can release your dogs out of behaviors Mm -hmm. and so forth but it's got to be specific to what you want. Like it's language. We said in an early episode, it's like there, there, and there. The ways that they're all spelt differently, but they all have a different meaning. But once you know what they mean and how to direct them, then you've got power how to use them properly. And that's exactly what we want to translate to the dog. Like this marker works in this direction, this marker works in this direction. Mm -hmm. And that's how to follow these examples. Yeah. You know, speaking of Michael Ellis, I learned markers from him. Yeah on a DVD. Yeah. Like I wonder yeah. how, what, what are the stats do you reckon oh, of man. people? Because when he was teaching, that was new then, mm-hmm. right? Like in 2010, and, 2011, I believe. Yeah. And it wasn't new. Like there were plenty of people Correct. doing it, yeah. but it wasn't mainstream. No. And I wonder, like, certainly that's where I learned what markers were and how to use them was from him. The video um, power of markers with Michael Ellis. Yeah. Yeah. We should get Ed on the show and be like, how many copies of that did sell Ed? Oh, and, and then man. And then have him watch him fly off Still the handle selling. when he realizes that. How many do you think were pirated, Ed? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, man. You'll, you'll fire him right That's up. That's the wrong yeah. person to ask that question. Yeah. No kidding. He probably actually has a, like a hit list of all those yeah. that he's done that to. Yeah. Remember he used to put that on his website? His like his anti people he do business with. Yeah. That oh, used yeah. To be like oh, a mate. major thing. On oh, his mate, there's, a, there's one I'll show you after this. You'll yeah. kill yourself <laughs> laughing at it. It's one of the funniest things. I found it funny too what you brought up. And it, it's so true how people view, especially if they only know one side of it. You know, it's like you mentioned, you know, the guys that know what bite work stuff I've done. And the funny part is, I've done 24 years of bite work. Yeah. And I've only in the past, let's say five, six years, really heavily focused detection. But those things were happening, those 20-something years of all that bite work was obviously prior to social media, prior to a lot of other things. And like I was telling Glenn, when, you know, my time came to an end with the SEAL team program stuff, I had a choice. My choice was, do I do the tactical stuff? And because I had a background and it had been a cop and, you know, for a hot minute and I had done SWAT for a hot minute and I had done, you know, a number of years with an elite unit that I got to learn a lot of things with. And in my approach would have been, I'm not a tactics guy. I'm not going to go down the tactics road with you kind of thing. 
it had been just how to employ dogs in these conditions mm-hmm. and the things that we did to help integrate a dog into a tactical situation and stuff like that. And I was just like, you know, looking at the landscape of the dog world, no one's focusing on detection mm. like they do in the bite work stuff. And you, when I kind of looked out there and just also wanting a change of 20 something years of doing the bite work and being a decoy and beating my body up, then going, I'm fatter and older now. I'm not going to be able to do this for much longer. Let's go do something that gives me a little more longevity. And like I mentioned in those lectures, I, I kind of hit the geeky side at that point because of the SEAL team stuff, learning cognition and getting into that science world. I was like, I'm going to go this way. And it's funny now. I mean, I, I'm flattered and love the fact that that's what they really know me for is mm. detection. But it's so funny that there's that whole history of my life for so many years of being a decoy and laying tracks and hiding and doing outs and, you know, just the typical stuff that people still do today is like doesn't exist. Mm. It, it, and it was even funny. It was like being a cop. I was with my best friend who was a lieutenant at the time. And he had been a cop for at that point, let's say 16, 17 years. And this new recruit comes over, you know, they get a, they arrested somebody, they had crack on them. She walks over and he had been over the head of the drug unit. He had done a lot of stuff, but now he's just a watch commander on a shift. She comes over and shows him a little crack, crack rock. Oh, commander, look, this, this is some crack. <laughs> and he's like, do they just not like, they have no, I like, Oh, I'm a Lieutenant. Now I forgot what crack looked like. <laughs> so I've been the commander of the drug unit. And it, but to their perspective, all they saw him was he was an admin. He was in a, you know, unmarked car and yeah. he, you know, keeps people online and stuff like that. How would it, how, why would he know what crack looks like? You yeah. know, yeah. it was just funny. It's just those funny life perspective things that, and I think social media is filled with that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. People see what they want to see or what they feel that they've been educated on. That's one example of multiples of people in different fields who have done exactly that. They've reinvented themselves from a career where they've been esteemed in a certain career path, yet they've done something else. And suddenly that sort of sparked interest with a certain group of people and that's what they're revered for. So that's all people know. Mm -hmm. And then when they find out that they've got this whole other history and they've been another identity, they go, I didn't know that about you. Yeah. But it doesn't serve a purpose for them at that time. So they only see what they want to see or what's beneficial at the time. But I think you sort of hit the scene hard with your detection work and that's where you really – And I think your passion and your interest in those years that you've been doing it have really accelerated you Mm -hmm. into that field. And as we were talking about when we were out there and we have also, well, we've been on the conference that we just finished up with Red Team, is one of the areas where I think your exceptional cam is bringing people together. Like you're a really good networker and you aren't so heavy and insecure in just promoting yourself. Like you think of the entire network, Mm -hmm. like the greater good of building this community and improving standards. Like you weren't shutting people down and stopping Mm -hmm. them from talking or going up to other people or, you know, trying to be number one at the conference. Mm -hmm. Instead, I saw you asking somebody else, like asking Bart Rogers, who is an incredible talent. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you and I were basically riffing before about what an influence he's going to have on the detection world and, uh, what he's going to do for the the new generation of people coming through and all the esteemed doctors that we've just had the privilege of listening to a very, very, very small amount of their brain power mm-hmm. over that period of time. But what I loved about it was you assembled those little scent detection Avengers, <laughs> you know, you brought them together and you gave us access to them. Like we got to them through you 
because I think that would have been a difficult process to make that happen. That itself is a fucking superpower. I really can't tell you how much I appreciate that because that's not usual. Usually people go, no, 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 look at me. Bring the light back to me. I'm the guy. I'm the guy. I'm the guy who's supposed to be doing the work. And that's not what the industry needs. That's how the industry suffocates. Mm -hmm. That's how the industry self-implodes. And that's a fucking horrible selfishness that we really need to root out of the industry. Mm -hmm. It's not good for anybody. No one benefits. No one learns. There's no ongoing education programs because what people are doing is trying to destroy everybody else's technique. Mm -hmm. Where what we need to do is we need to look at it collectively and holistically and saying, hey, it's good but it could be better Mm -hmm. and here's how it could be better. Like if I give you access to these people and you you can actually read the facts, read Mm -hmm. where science is going and the truth about what's actually happening, which you did and which the doctors have put forward to us, Mm -hmm. what they currently know in their studies, you know, they're open to it. This is current studies and it's the truth as we know it today. For me, it was just, it's... I got lucky, you know, the way I look. No, you didn't. No, I don't believe that for a minute. I don't believe you got lucky. I think you made this happen. I've been very, to me, whatever term or word you want. Yes, you're right. In some aspects, I had to bust my ass to do, to get into positions to eventually have an opportunity. Mm. You're right. It wasn't just luck. I didn't, didn't fall into it. But because people took a chance on me, were willing to, even though as annoying as I was probably, you know, ha- harassing and hounding them for information or like the one who I grew up with that started me on the path, you know, I was being the annoying little neighbor kid. And then through life, I just, when I saw something, I wanted to go learn from that person. And then those that were, re- you know, receptive to that, shared that knowledge with me, didn't turn dog training into a magic show. Like, oh, you have to be the magician to really know how this works. The ones that were really willing to share information for me, motivated me. Mm. And I wanted to share. So now that philosophy for me is when I come across people like the doctors that we all had, like Dr. Lucy Lazarowski and Dr. Nathan Hall, Paula Tiedemann, Lauren DeGrieff, Michelle Mon, and all of them. When I've come across them in different times of my life in the career I had was they were always willing. And I'd have these amazing conversations with these people and I said, this has to be shared. Mm. Just like you said about Bart, Bart Rogers, who's uh, Lucia's husband. Pat, I, I, I had some amazing conversations. Yeah, with I mean, the, what that guy has mm. done and been through, and he's just in the background of the detection dog world. You know, he doesn't, he's not even, uh, I would say he's like three levels down as far as notability, as far as like people know who he is, mm. because he's, he's just doing the job. He's out there every day doing the job, not looking for the limelight. But man, the information he has within him that should be shared to more is amazing. And like like I told you, my goal is to, you know, I want to see his voice rise more and share that knowledge that he's been through. He's done like the Python work, you know, sharing some of that stuff with other people, like the story he was telling about, he's got a Python by one, you know, by the tail, he's got his dog with a toy in the other hand. And the guy wants to shoot the, you know, just all the (laughs) stuff crawling through a mangrove, all the craziness. People like that. So for me, it was, that's how my podcast came about was I wanted to share those voices. And then this event that we got to have this past week was kind of a culmination of that. We, that was the first time we've all taught together. And it was super cool for me to sit back and go, especially when we were all like removing slides from our own PowerPoints, because we had so many overlapping things that were 
we were so alike. That was so cool watching people stressing about their presentations, like <laughs> even esteemed doctors all sitting there at the end, like still making sure their PowerPoints were changed <laughs> and accurate or, as you said, shifting the slides out because, I mean, I was literally doing that the night before. I was sweating about it and I'm thinking, what do I talk about so I don't overlap on what you're talking about and what they're talking about and it's different from everything else so it's not so similar or everything like that but yeah it was it was great to see everybody in that same situation yeah and <laughs> this conference is its first year here. yes can you imagine what year four or five will be like mm. for scent work in australia and especially collectively for the agencies i think that's probably one of the best things that i've seen for our industry in scent work yeah and i've probably got some colleagues that agree with that because I've spoken to people and they said that was just the greatest thing that we could have gone to. For, I can't for even right think now. of in the States when all of us have been at the same time, same place. Really? Like that. Yeah. yeah. That's what I was going to ask. Have you all guys all been under one roof like that before? Not like that. Now have, let's just say three quarters of them been on the same roof before. Yeah. I, I would say if I remember right, there's been th- a couple of times where the three or four of them have been, but it's been heavy science related. Mm-hmm. Not, no, not so much dog handlers and trainers getting exposed to three or four of them at one time. I think the closest, maybe a conference here and there, you might have two of those uh, individuals. I think actually the last one in uh, Florida, there was three, Nathan uh, DeGrief and Michelle were all the same, mm-hmm. uh, same conference. Yeah, that was so cool. I had never been with all of them at the same time. I'd been with Nathan and Paola. Mm. I sat, like, DeGrief and I have taught the same places, but it's not the same time, so I couldn't sit in hers and she couldn't sit in mine. And and Lucia, this is this was one of the first times for her to be more, I'd say, more heavy police law enforcement mm. kind of conference. And then definitely Bart's around it, but Bart, this was like, we, got to, we all kind of at the last minute thrust him on the stage and said, you need to talk. But... Yeah, that was a rare, special thing. I hope it doesn't stay rare. I mean, obviously, I know the goal is for next year that can continue to add a few more Avengers to it. There's definitely talk for a version two. The talks have already started, which is great. That's really promising. And one of the other points that I really want to make on that was how wonderfully approachable all of those mm-hmm. people were and how relatable they were to everybody. Like, even though they're esteemed doctors and they've earned their credibility, they were very approachable. They love going out and having a conversation with people. I mm. found that just absolutely wonderful. Yeah. People could actually relate to them on a human being level as well. Like they weren't so sciencey that there was no connection there or no capability of a conversation, especially Michelle. Michelle yeah. is very relatable. <laughs> yeah. so she she yeah. was hysterical. I think there, there's not a bunch of lab coats and eggheads walking around. They're exactly, actually human beings. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But I think it's it is a little bit rare that scientists like that get put in front of their end users that are so fascinated by they loved it they were that's what they said too they i spoke to a few of them last night and they said we actually appreciated it because not many people ask us yeah and i think they do a lot of those studies it all like super information comes out they write the paper and you hope some people read it yeah right and in this instance it was they got to deliver their information and say hey this is the work we've done and it's relevant to you and that was what motivated me, honestly, because of being the geek in me and being around those people, I ended up finding myself as that conduit piece between what I joke around is the knuckle dragger community to the egghead community <laughs> because I had that, <laughs> I had both sides to me. There was like the Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde Cameron, as far as like science, you know, gun toter to egghead and through the podcast and 
just sometimes like sharing things on social media or videos or so forth, they, you're right. That's the hardest thing for them is the typical handler audience. One, many times don't even know where to go to find them. Mm. A paper might get passed around a, a social media circle uh, or a research article. 98% of the cops aren't going to read much past the abstract, let alone the whole entire research yeah, paper. Yeah, papers are a whole they're, different fundamental. Yeah, it, mm. it, they're not always the easiest to digest, obviously. Yeah. But so then people want the Cliff Notes version. Hey, what's the easy version or, or what's the research for dummies version of this? So that's where Cameron came in. Yep. I'm, I'm the research for dummies and I'll go out there and go, I'm still trying to process what that word definition was, but here's, I think, what it mostly means. Mm. And because of that, because of the friendships, honestly, at the end of it, I could reach out to, or when I have a question, when someone hits me with something that's a little bit of a curveball, I'll either send them directly to them and punt it to them and say, hey, you go, you go directly to them and ask them that question, or I'll reach out to my myself because I'm curious. I want an answer, too. When mm. someone hit me with something I haven't really thought of before or the way they ask that question. Uh, I'll give a, a short example because this is good learning for those that are listening. So one person asked me, what's the difference between trace and residual? And I was like, huh, I already knew lingering and residual. I knew those differences. But I was like, ooh, I wonder what trace is. So I shoot an email or actually a Facebook message to Paola. And I was like, hey, so obviously lingering is the gas that moves, it goes away. Uh, residual is there's a, there's a, there's some substance on the substrate, which mm. means something on the surface is left behind that could be tested or measured. I said, so what's trace by definition? Oh, that's just more than residual. <laughs> like a larger amount. Yeah, a larger amount. Okay. So, and I was like, oh, but see, that's the problem in all, many aspects of our dog world is definitions in terms that get passed around all the time. You said that in one of your podcasts, and I'm glad you brought that up because I think this is worth anybody that's not listening to Talking Sense, and you should be. Um, if you're listening to it through us, please continue, Cameron. <laughs> this is really important. Yeah. So one of the de one of the big things that people don't know is scent and odor are defined differently, mm. and. I use this as a setup question a lot of times. For, I'll, I'll ask them and, and you guys will have uh, seen it in my, my uh, presentation I did, which is like, first question is, are you the expert of your dog? And of course, they're all going to say yes. Okay, good. What's the definition of scent and odor? Gears grind immediately. Mm -hmm. And then you can see the steam coming out like, oh, uh, uh, you know, because it's been so used back and forth. Yeah. And I do that on purpose because then I go back to question number one. Well, just a second ago, you said you're the expert of your dog and you can't give me the definition of scent and definition of odor. So I use that as my point to kind of reach that humility part with us. Like, hey, okay, I don't know this. Help me. So, hey, easy answer so you can make sense to you is scent is related to living things. Mm. So human scent, animal scent, etc. Odor is the chemicals of something. The odor of a narcotic, odor of an explosive, odor of... So that makes it much easier to understand. And it helps them realize when we misuse terms. Like, so after the, I did that definition in the conference, Kobe came over to me and goes, hey, so I'm thinking I might have to change the name of the conference to be Canine Odor Detection Conference. <laughs> and, I, and I said, don't. I said, but just add it. I said, so make it the Canine odor and scent or scent and odor conference. Yep. I said, because the minute you bring tracking into this and there's other things with living, you know, you can get conservation. Those mm -hmm. dogs may be detecting the scent of whatever that could be living. Right. 
So there's relevance to it. I just wanted people to realize there is a difference to be, all of us want to be dog handlers. No one's really ever forcing people to be a dog handler. So my philosophy and kind of back to your point of how I got to where I was at was I want to learn. If I want to do this, the onus is on me to get better. Mm. I should constantly be seeking out ways to be better. How can I learn more? How can I improve my ability? If I slow down and just get comfortable and relax and just take, oh, I, I got enough now, I, I could do that any point I want to now. I've done this for almost 30 years. Of course, I can just be happy and stick to what I do and what I know. For me, I, I, I'm so hungry for more knowledge. I'm so hungry to hear from, I almost don't even care who it is. If I'm attracted to something that they're showing, whether it be social media, otherwise, I'm going to watch it. Yep. I want to see, can I take that for something? Is there something there that I like that, ooh, maybe I can apply that with this dog and it'll you know improve my skill or whatever it is. I hate sitting still with accepting that this is enough. I want more. And you know, I'm a more on the extreme level of that, but I think anybody who's a dog handler and wants to be better with their dog should constantly be trying to find ways to be better. Mm. It's a tricky slope now with social media because there's a lot of stuff that gets passed on there that you don't know if that information is good or like mm. to like how we started, where do I put that information? Mm. I see it. I don't know if I understand it, but it seems valuable, but I don't know what to do with it yet. Mm. But what's cool is could be a year from now, two years from now, you're like, Oh, that totally makes sense now, especially for those newer handlers. The newer ones are the hungry ones, right? Mm. They're the ones who want all the information. Those are the ones we see on social media. You're like, hey, I just got a new dog and it won't let go of the toy for me. What should I do? You know, because whatever they've been doing at that point hasn't worked. So they have a problem. So now they're seeking out information. And what happens? A barrage of information gets thrown at them from different perspectives. Mm. Could be a patrol dog guy. Could be a, uh, a detection handler. And they use different ways to out the dog. Could be a knee popo trainer versus a compulsion trainer. You know, like kick his ass and take the toy from him. That's how you do it. You know, another one's like, no, cooperative. And so there's so much. It's that double-edged sword. Yeah. You know, it's so awesome to have, but take that information in and learn how to digest it. Don't just grab it so quickly and say, this is the thing I'm going to follow. That's my advice. It's interesting, your discussion around the early and the enthusiastic new person that's coming in. Because I recall when I first got into training many decades ago now, and I recall having a conversation with a group just as the internet sort of really came into popularity. And it wasn't so much social media. Well, it was, but it was more mm -hmm. like online forums where you'd type a the question. Yahoo chat groups. Yes, those sort of things. <laughs> So they were the earliest forms of social media that were around at the time. And I really felt that it was important to immerse myself in wolves and wolf culture. And I bought a lot of books and I read a lot about wolves and I really thought that was the cool area to go down. Like I really needed to know a lot about wolves. And there were some interesting things on behavior. And yes, there's parallels there that are certainly applicable to what we're doing in dog training. However, one of the guys from America, and I cannot remember his name, and I feel guilty that I can't because he was the person that said, hey, mate, I've been reading some of your points. This is my qualifications. I've been involved in both wolves in, in a zoological department and also with canines. And he said, if you're going to be a canine trainer, don't worry about the wolves. They're fundamentally different. And he said, and it's cool and it's interesting to a point. And he said, but 
stick with canines. Canine behavior is where it's at. So that's my advice to you and best of luck. Mm-hmm. He was the one that stopped me from spending a lot of time foraging around for wolf information. And yeah, it was interesting, but I wasn't a conservationist. Mm-hmm. I wasn't going to go out and work with wolves. I wasn't going to work in zoos with wolf behavior or anything like that. So it really, he was right. It really was not relevant to me. So therefore I did spend more of my time researching and trying to find people in animal behavior relatable to canines and so forth. So I appreciate what you were saying. It brings up the buzzwords. And I know, Pat, this is a great one for you because the industry itself loves certain terms and they grab hold of this. And it's the new hot thing for Mm. six months, year, whatever it is for a while. And right now, cognition is one of them. Mm. And I I sit back and kind of laugh a little bit myself because – I've been doing it now for a number of years before it became the now it's definitely gained a lot. I have people, I see people now teaching it that I'm like, how did they, cause it's such a small community. There are a few that know it and, and really do it, but then there's so now the words you use so frequently, it becomes buzzwords. And I know like you did a whole video, Pat, where you're talking about, you know, polarizing aspects yeah. and, and things like that, that our, our industry, that's again, back to that learning, like, how do you digest? Well, that's the issue. I think like with so much access to information, it's hard to sort of cut the wheat from the chaff, you know? Yep. And unfortunately, very often, like we all think we have the good information and I think I do. I have success in yep. what I do. I'm very thoughtful in the way I present. And I think I, you know, I, I speak for all of us when you think you're doing the same, mm-hmm. but Maybe someone's looking at your content going, this fucking guy's got no idea. (laughs) And at his level of knowledge, maybe he's Uh right, right? Uh Because there's plenty of people that I look at online. Someone sent me a TikTok just today of a guy just fucking vomiting nonsense into his TikTok about dog training. And it's the dumbest shit. But he's got 40,000 followers, you know, and they're all pet dog owners. And in reality, the information that he was giving them is probably pretty good for them, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. a, most of the people that are following him, there's probably 20 people following him getting angry at his stuff. Sure. And one of them is the one that sent me the videos yep. of him. But the majority of the people that are served by his bullshit are probably served quite well, Yeah, right? And so that's kind of the issue of what is the appropriate level of information for the right people and how to, you know, through the distribution of the internet, how does that happen? especially working dog space while biting sports, you see it in Europe, like it's all in the decline. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. you know, the quickest way to ruin, uh, the quickest way to destroy your own hobby is to not let new people in. Right. And Mm -hmm. I think that we're often, you know, we're very guarded because we have a lot to lose and there is a lot of people, you know, who do mean us harm. Right. And so we're guarded about who we let in. We're guarded about how we give that information. And then we have, Dogs is interesting in the emotions that it brings out of people yeah. and people who are like otherwise rational can become very irrational around a conversation. It that follows that religion pattern. Totally. Yep. Yeah. Totally. And so I think that like in that distribution of information, it's really difficult. And I think one of the big sources of arguments that we see is exactly as you're saying then is those definitions, because the way that I might explain something, there have been instances where I know for sure that me and another person would explain something in totally different ways because we use language differently, but also we know we serve a different audience. Mm -hmm. But if you 
put the dog in front of us, we'd both do the same thing. Correct. Right. But it's just that I would explain it. I don't hide, like for me, especially being a balanced trainer, I don't hide the words that I mm-hmm. use. I use punishment because I say that's, yep. that's the right thing. I don't say just interrupt that behavior and yeah, take it over yeah, there. Yeah. Right. I don't bullshit. Yeah. Well, if you um, say I need to go to the toilet in French and I need to go to the toilet in English, it's the same outcome. Yeah. It's just said differently. Yeah. 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 But I mean, so that's the issue. Like I think that very often there are arguments where the people watching the argument online and often those arguments are not direct either. People will like, I'll say something over here and someone else says something over here and I see it and I address it. So like, we're not like necessarily at each other, but you have people that take sides Mm -hmm. and very often there's no side to take. It's actually the same thing. Or for the most part, it's the same thing. It's just the words we're using are different. Mm -hmm. And that style of language or that way of communicating appeals more to some people. So I think it's really tricky at the moment. And I think what prompted me to sort of think this way was you're talking about those new handlers. And and so often you see people just overwhelm themselves. They're like, I'm thirsty for knowledge. There's just so much available. Whereas when you guys got into it, it's all in person or books. I was just going to say that. I would say the only, and I think this we need to come back to that a little bit, which was it was books or you had to bring it. So, VHSs. Yeah, well, mm. so I was sitting with Pat Nolan and Armin Winkler at the last conference I was at. And this came up, this exact same thing. And we were all joking around, you know, like stuff was so easy to get now. It pisses Armin off a lot with a lot of those kind of like easy things. He's like, you have to work for it, you know? And I related to that, but that we joked around when we learned there was two ways, books and show up in person. Mm. Like I shared with you before, like when I was in Germany, I ended up going to a small farm field to go find Bart Ballon and Helmut Reiser together. I don't know how many hours I drove. I don't remember anymore, but that was the only way I could be around them. Mm. Same with, you know, I found Ivan at a field in, uh, I forget where it was, uh, Luxembourg or something. He was competing. You know, Michael Ellis and him and other ones going to a club, sitting there by a campfire, you know, all of that stuff. That was the only way. Mm. But that slower processing and witnessing that information was a lot easier Mm. than just trying to watch. Me and you were talking about this yesterday too. YouTube videos. I can put a, no joke, a two minute video and they're all going to watch one minute. I dare to make a 30 second video to see if, if the average watch time is 15 seconds. You know? Cause it seems like if it, they want the information as fast as possible, this is, it's our culture now is like, how quick can I take it in and then go on the next, but we're missing the value of reading the book. Yep. The value of being in person. Now that COVID's kind of, we move past that. We can now go back. I think we have to go back to, you have to be there in person. You have to touch, feel, watch these things happen. And you can't get that all the time from a Zoom chat or a YouTube video. You know, yes, we've evolved and our information is going to, how we share that changes, but there's so much value in reading and touching and being there in person. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, most people say like their online courses and whatever that they have, certainly this is the case of mine is they're filmed at live events. Yeah. And so the examples you use, the references, just the way you're driving with the people that are there causes you to describe something in a particular way. And that was the way that was best for those 50 people. Sure. Right. It's not necessarily the way that's best for the 5,000 subsequent people who will watch it. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's kind of when you are in person 
and someone's not getting it, you get to change examples, right? Yeah. Like you get to say like, oh, that's not going to land. And I say something else and I can massage that information so that it lands correctly. Yeah. But online you can't do that. Right. Yeah. And so like, it's fantastic. It's amazing. It's, it's awesome. Like, and don't get me wrong. I've done, I've like, if there's an online course out there I haven't done, let me know because I, like, I'll, I'll do it. <laughs> yeah. But you've got to learn to sort of aggregate that information Correct. and distill it down to be like, okay, what is, what's actually new here and what just isn't new words? Like mm -hmm. what's actually new? How can I implement this? Mm -hmm. Should I implement this? Can I implement this? You know, like rather than, that's my biggest concern when we see really enthusiastic people come into the space that just consume everything mm -hmm. and don't know how to distill it. And then they're just a mess of systems all over the place. Mm -hmm. I've said it a million times in this podcast, I think that anybody that you've heard of that's teaching, their shit works. Otherwise you wouldn't have heard of it, right? Yeah, like, for sure. But it sort of got to work in the way that it does. It can't work as like a piece of that and a piece of something Correct. else. Correct. That's a big thing too is the taking little bits here and there because what you don't know is sometimes those two little bits you took might actually conflict to the dog. Yeah. You know, it makes sense to you. And then that's where I had fun. The cognition stuff is like, well, did that really make sense to the dog? You know, because you got to see that in that video I shared you, the way they were evaluating so many of these animals was through a human perspective. Yeah. And yeah, that was fascinating. Too. Once they changed it to, testing the animal through the animal's way of doing it. The, the elephant dog. example was brilliant. Yeah, that was awesome. So, And we should elaborate on yeah, that. Yeah, I was say, you can't okay. just say that yeah. shit. I don't know what you're yeah. talking about. <laughs> so in, in this case, what it was, it was they wanted to evaluate the elephant's use of tools to solve the problem. So they left like sticks in the environment. For, so that way the elephant would use its trunk to whack down the food at a certain height. And the elephants failed miserably at it. So they couldn't figure out why they don't necessarily list the reason why they made the switch, but then they decided to make a switch. But a, just, sorry, Cam, just before we go ahead with yeah. that, what I should elaborate to, what we should elaborate to is when they measure the amount of neurons in an elephant's brain compared to a human, it's overwhelmingly higher, right? like significantly higher. 660 million neurons to our 160 million. Yeah, neurons. it was okay. just that, significantly yeah. higher. So, so it should be capable of very high level thinking. That, that was their thinking. And that was when Cam was talking about that example, which I'm going to let him continue on in a minute. But when they were talking about that, why the elephant wouldn't do it, they were assuming that the elephant's maybe not that intelligent after mm -hmm. all, until what they ended up doing was they, they saw the elephants could not do it with a stick. So they decided to put objects such as big blocks or big tires so they could stand on it and do it. And it turns out the reason why the elephant was failing was when they use their trunk, because the elephant has the best olfaction system, I think pretty much on the planet. They're mm. higher than everything. Really? Stephen Lee is a, a researcher for the army. He's been studying elephants to use for military purposes as far as like, what can we learn from an elephant nose to turn into a machine? Mm -hmm. So when the elephant uses his trunk to grab the stick, it turns off using its olfactory receptors. Oh, wow. And they didn't know that at first. So the stick became a disadvantage when the use of a trunk, when then they gave them the blocks, the elephant would push the block into the position, stand on it and use its trunk to grab the fruit or whatever and pull it down. Mm. So it wasn't that they couldn't do it, but there wasn't anything in the environment that they could use to do it. And then again, they were you they were thinking like a human. Oh, well, if I give them a stick, it's an extension of their trunk. They should be able to grab this easy, not considering that, well, you completely inhibited it as a way to actually target locate what they were doing because now the nose is not on anymore. Mm, that's so, super interesting. Yeah. That's one of the things I talk about all the time is trying to, whenever you're teaching behaviors, to try and understand it from your dog's perspective. Like, what did your dog actually learn today? 
And there's so many examples. One of them I always, people are always shocked when, you know, you tell your dog to out and, and recall and he heals against a decoy. Yeah. And, and people are always like, you idiot dog. And they get angry at the dog. And it's like, no, 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 no. Because you've been holding the toy the whole time you've been teaching the dog how to heal. And so the dog's understanding is mm-hmm. heal against the person holding the reinforcer. Yep. He, he did never, he never decided it was you. Yep. And now that you've told him to heal and there's a decoy right there, of course he heals against the decoy. Like to him, that's common sense. Yeah. It's and contact generalization. Yeah. And if you correct him in that moment, he's going to like, you're going to get some negative feelings about healing. So you've mm. got to be like, Hey man, that's wrong. We're back to learning phase. Like, and it's not to say I won't use pressure. I might use some negative reinforcement out of that position. Like, but I'm going to help the dog understand it. But like, he definitely thought he was doing the right thing. Yeah. And I think that's where people that like, that's one of the biggest problems I see of like, you know, when you see conflict with the handler and the dog and like the, the dog, yeah, you often see the dogs are quite, I won't say scared, but they're like, hey, you do. Yeah, well, sometimes dogs and handlers, like you see the dog, like people who really can read a dog, sometimes I see with their handlers, the dog's like, you do weird shit, man. You do things that I don't always, like I can't always tell when the correction's coming. And that's often, you know, with the powerful dogs, that's how we we diagnose them as handler aggressive when actually Mm -hmm. they're just like, they're just trying to find ways to turn off pressure. But I think often it is the case that like, the dog is accused of being disobedient when actually he's being totally obedient. Correct. From his perspective. Yep. It, what you're bringing up is one of the main things that I that I share in the detection aspect, which is the context learning and context generalization. And people assume how they taught the dog that the dog knew the target odor. And it turns out so often the dog learned the context such mm. as the hide, this is a novel smell here out of this room that let's say we're in, it has its own smell until we introduce something different in here. Mm. And most times the only thing that we're ever introducing is the target. So all of a sudden when there is now other non-targets introduced to the space, the dog will did, doesn't really shows it doesn't really know as well the target like we thought it did. So handlers go down and, and kind of panic. And so I share with them, you know, through the the classes I do and stuff like that is how to teach through the context generalization. So that way the dog starts understanding it's this thing, Mm. not like you said, these other conditions that they thought were relevant turn out those actually aren't relevant. It's this thing, but they need multiple examples over time to figure that out. But again, we are looking at it from a human perspective. Well, I put this here and I've seen this and I've seen it work in other instances, but we fail to really sit back and go, Oh, wait a second. I haven't, hidden other things like I hide this thing, the target. And then when the dog comes into it, it's not that it's attracted to whatever the non-target item was to say, I put in dirty socks, you know, put my sock off, I hit it in there. The dog goes, Oh, this is different. Is I don't, now I don't have to go proof off of everybody's dirty socks. I just have to teach my dog, Hey, you're looking for this odor. Mm. Just because something is novel to the space doesn't mean that's the target. But because of that prior training before the only thing we keep putting out in that environment was target and very rarely did an example I give was um, I was training with a friend of mine, actually with you guys, who you guys know, Eric Stanbrew from working dog radio. Mm-hmm. I was at his place and they had the get sent tubes there. And these were tubes that they had never been used before. And those that don't know what a get sent tube is, it's a, it's a tube designed by a chemist to absorb an odor. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so these weren't used yet. So they had nothing on them. So I didn't even take them out of the package. I just took the package that holds two tubes and hid it in a door seam of this building. Almost every dog showed either extreme levels of interest, like, hey, there's something here, 
maybe one or two went into a full response, but a majority just showed heavy interest. So handlers read that and said, ooh, something must be there. So when they go back a second or a third time, the dog would eventually go, okay, this must be relevant then because you're also doing that handler dance behind me. So this must be mean something. So there's another context clue. So it's like something different, handler's doing the dance. Okay, I guess I should probably do this. So when I took those two tubes out and just laid them loose on the, there's a, there was like a stairway next to that. I took it, I had them leave, came back, and all I did was drop the little package of tubes onto the stairs. Every dog walked it, like couldn't even care less about it. Mm. At that point, two or three handlers were like, oh, I have to proof my dog off the tubes. And I'm like, no, you don't. It's the context I presented to the dog that looks basically if, if something's hidden. Four things are present. Mm. Human scent, because I put it there. It's contextual aspect. It's hidden. It's a foreign odor to the space. Mm. And after the first dog runs on it, now there's dog saliva or mm. dog scent there. So the dog goes, hey, a number of the indicators I look for, and I'll even add number five. Handler doing the dance because the handler sees change and they've been, it's been ingrained in handler's heads that they do detection, get ready to reward, get ready to reward, don't stand still, do all these things. And so the handlers are doing that. And then that's causing the dog to go, oh, well, that means something versus teaching the dog, hey, no matter what I do, that means nothing. Mm. I bring you to the area. I interpret what you tell me. But me standing, moving, doing whatever, it means absolutely nothing. So stop using that as information. Because every handler, many handlers are told, don't stand still. If you stand still, you're going to cue your dog. And my thing is to many trainers, why aren't you fixing that? Why aren't you addressing the fact that you should be able to stand still, depending on what's happening. You should be able to move. I should be able to do whatever I do, and none of those things affect the dog's detection skill. But because we built a system off of trickery with dogs and detection specifically, that then the dogs, and we all know the dogs aren't fooled. You ask every handler, does a dog know you have a reward on you? Yeah. So then why do we do the trickery to try to convince them they're not? We, we already accept the fact that they don't believe it. Mm. But yet it's been ingrained in us through our inherited learning from all the trainers in front of us. This is what you do. And it gets so ingrained in us that when you have handlers and I tell them, hey, look, stand still. The minute their dogs start working odor, they just start, it's subconscious. They start moving. I'm like, why are you moving? Oh man, I didn't even realize, you know. It's because it's been so put into our heads. We had to do it this way. And the dog, the creature who can read us better than any other animal on the planet goes, oh, I know what this means. I think the criminal part behind that is the inhibition it creates to do their job properly. Yes. Because they become codependent on looking for all the subtle cues that the handler is giving in the environment around it, that the dog is doing side glances to look. What's happening? What are you doing? Where are you? Why are you there? Why did you stand there? Is Um, your hand in your pocket? Yeah, they become nervous to do their job. Something that you were talking about earlier, Cameron, I think I was listening to you talking about something similar on a podcast and a student in the NDTF asked me about it. And the way I related it to them because they were struggling to understand the concept. And I said, there's an old Sesame Street song that they used to teach kids called One of These Things is Not Like the Other Things. <laughs> you know, it was kids to look and identify, oh, that's the odd thing out. And that's what you want to teach the dog. Mm-hmm. You know, like there's a line of similar things, but one is just not like the others. Mm-hmm. And that's the odor that you're looking for. Mm-hmm. You were talking about this before, Pat. For them, they got it when I understood. Mm-hmm. Uh, they Sorry, they understood it when I said it like that. Mm-hmm. They didn't understand it the other way because it was new to them and they'd yeah. never been exposed to it that way. 
and they were confused about the whole aspect of it. But there's so many ways to teach people. The reference that I used before about speaking French and speaking English, it's the same outcome. And we've got to accept that there are very good teachers out there who still do teach very well. And we don't have to shoot them down across the room and or mm-hmm. watch their videos and say, no, 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 they're fucking wrong. Don't listen to them. Mm-hmm. Listen to me. Mm-hmm. If they're... I I think once again it relates to that old concept or that saying that many roads lead to Rome Mm -hmm. and it's the same in bite work. You know, you see dogs go to trial and you think this shouldn't work but they end up in the winner's circle or you see it in detection you think, no, that's wrong but they end up finding the odour well and they're consistent with their work. Then you have to look at it and say maybe they're onto something, maybe they're doing their job well, maybe I need to ask them questions like you were using good examples before. How do you do that? What are you doing and and why is it different to mine? Mm -hmm. Or is it not different to mine? Is it just that our context is so similar Mm -hmm. but yet we're just saying it in different ways and maybe – Maybe that's what we need to do is clean up language a little bit. Yeah. Maybe not need to be so different or so unique to each other to have the industry buzzwords, but develop a language which just tidies it all up a bit and cleans mm-hmm. it up. Mm-hmm. I'm the first to admit I have a preferred way I want to train dogs. You know, that for me in detection, I like delayed conditioning best. But I'm the first to say if I need to use simultaneous conditioning or pairing, aka pairing. I will do it if it works best for that dog. Now, that would be limited. As soon as I get the point across, I'm going to go to the method I'm going to use, which is delayed. So it has a, I have a pathway. And it's a question that you guys heard me ask the uh, a lot of students. What do you want? Do you want reward that leads to odor? Or do you want odor that leads to reward? And of course, unanimously, people say odor that leads to reward. So then I ask, well, we've had a system that is very popular, been used for years, simultaneous conditioning where we're pairing the reward item food or toy with the odor and then we remove that food or item and it's just the odor Mm. but what we did psychologically to the dog was taught them reward led to odor and in that early stage that's extremely profound to the dog again back to cognition dogs with high memory this is even more profound to them than the dog who may be inference but maybe on the inference dog that's the inference it made too so we Mm -hmm. have to you know the understanding part so if i want clarity i want to as quickly as i can have the dog realize odor the target whatever it is is my pathway to get to the reward delayed conditioning allows that it's literally a two second difference from what we used to do it's also evolutionary as well absolutely and and of course if you that was the beauty of all the scientists being Mm. there was they show you yeah we've looked at reversed conditioning delayed conditioning simultaneous conditioning and hands down in specifically detection delayed conditioning in many aspects is the most effective. The dogs don't eat the rabbit and then go looking for it. Yes, exactly, yeah. exactly. Mm. So it's important that, like you said, we evolve as trainers and realize, oh, if I just change it by two seconds, is that really hard to do? Mm. It's not. In my opinion, and I believe many of us in the room share the same opinion, it should be a Pavlovian effect. It should create a reflexive response. Like if I come into odor, I'm thinking about reward now. And the old way we thought we did that was by pairing the reward item there Mm. because that had a strong intrinsic value to the dog. Yep. So what we realized was we need stimulus on, the odor first, and then while stimulus is on, then reinforcement happens, which made the stimulus stronger. Mm. And that's that part we're at now in the detection world where we're evolving to that. And again, like you said, Pat, earlier, people will draw the line in the sand. You're either simultaneous or, you know, direct or indirect, you know, no, all of them can work. 
but there's also data behind certain things that can be effective or more efficient. And that's what I want. I want clarity and efficiency in my training. Mm. And I'll do, I'll use whatever technique applies that to that dog. A vast majority when it comes to detection, delayed conditioning is obviously the strongest. I am again, the first to say I have had a dog recently that I had to do simultaneous. I just did it for a few reps because once the dog got, oh, oh, okay, this is what you want. I could pull that reward out of, out of the way and go to the, what I would normally do, mm. just stimulus on. And then, re- but for whatever reason, that dog just did better when I had a little bit of the reward item in that odor picture for it. So are you coming forward saying use what works? Yeah. Wow. I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Controversial. And I think that fits exactly what I started saying a while ago when luring versus shaping. Yeah. Because it's the same thing essentially, yeah. whether you're luring the dog into odor yeah. or waiting to find yeah. it and then you pay. Yeah. But it's helped the dog as little as possible, but as much as necessary. Yes. Like exactly. It's as simple as that. Yes. And I think you can distill all the techniques yep. can go into that. Mm. Just help him as little as possible, but I as like much that. as he needs. I like that saying. I think yeah. it, it's a nice summary yeah Yeah. Mm. so my question to you guys is how did you guys like the conference because i was a presenter you know and i like i said i know those people this is the first time i know you guys both had ever been exposed to some of them in that way Mm. go ahead whoever i find detection really stressful yeah and i'll explain why it's why i've never i've trained with plenty of detection people and i and paid to help in the assistance of training detection dogs. But what I don't tend to do is get involved in the training of the detection. Mm-hmm. My skill set is getting dogs to do stuff like reliably, yeah. right? Yeah. So all the detection dogs that I usually train, they already have their detection piece, but for some reason don't want to work. You know, they're distracted elsewhere. And that's yeah. my skill set is bringing dogs into that. The reason I've stayed away from detection for the most part was highlighted even further <laughs> while I was there is because I get so stressed out about the whole contamination piece. Oh, gotcha. And like as a person that's been blown up by an IED, yeah. I take the idea of like explosive detection dogs very seriously. Yeah. And I also think drug dogs are just dobbing on people. <laughs> so, like, so like I, I, uh, I just find explosive detection the – the burden of success sure. is incredible. Yeah. A- and I find that super stressful. Yeah. And I find the idea of like imprinting odor and all the things that can go wrong along the way oh, yeah. stresses me out. And yeah. the way that my brain works, like I'm such I'm so obsessive with detail and the way that I think means that I'm constantly concerned that I'm doing it incorrectly and that I've contaminated something. And I'm probably like... 10 steps too far of like not needing to do these things, (laughs) but I can't stop thinking about it. And I think that in the real working dog space, I train dogs to bite, I train dogs to track, I train all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, you can never be sure, right? Like, as you know, with a biting dog, you don't know, like, just like I've been in real gunfights with real people who went to water Mm -hmm. and they sure as fuck didn't see that coming because they wouldn't have put themselves in that position. And I think the same can happen to a dog and I usually, you know, we can front load all of that, but that cop's going to have a gun. Oh, yeah. And if the dog fails him, which we hope it doesn't, and we yeah. do everything we fucking can, yeah. he's going to be able to do something about it. And the idea of explosive detection dogs stresses the fuck <laughs> out of it because if the dog fails, if the dog doesn't do what it needs to do, mm-hmm. like someone could get killed. And, sure. and that has always stressed me out yeah. like a ton 
like I say, this comes from a person. I've yeah. When I got blown up, it was a dog had gone over that IED, right? Mm-hmm. And so he wasn't searching. Like he, we were just crossing yep. it. He wasn't told to search, yeah, but yeah. it still might have been handy information. No, there yeah. were three mortar rounds buried in the ground that yeah. killed everybody except me. Right? Yeah. It was the whole Afghan army crew I was with. Uh-huh. But so. That distresses the shit out sure. of me. And watching the presentations, especially, uh-huh. I don't know how much detail to go into because I don't want to fucking be the guy that causes the can of worms. That's your job. <laughs> but but yeah, I was misinformed. Like, I was like, yeah, yeah you I was like, oh, this confirms that most of the civilian train, especially in this country where we don't yep. have access to lives. Yeah, I was like, this confirms to me that most of those dogs aren't doing shit. Yep. Um, it's, and it's a scary world when it comes to synthetics and odor soaks. Well, and all they're Goes the lid off the can. Yeah. <laughs> and so again, I was like, like I remember I was sitting at the back of the room and they were giving that presentation. Yeah. And I was like, oh no, this is why I don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> this is why and this and this is why in the detection space I only work for government agencies yeah. who have access to the real stuff. Yeah. It stressed me the fuck out. So yeah. so yeah, that's how I felt about the whole thing. But but, but I, I like that even the information was presented very clearly to oh, you. Oh, super clear. Yeah. The cool thing was with it wasn't just one instructor there that shared the information. It was the five of them, yeah. you know, and there was obviously a very clear theme when it came to very, you know, other detection tools or uh, like I love the one they did myth busting. That mm-hmm. was fun. Contamination, like you talked about, too. What odor is doing in a space? Like one of the things I'll share is like, does all odor fall? And the answer was no, because the higher the VOC. So like uh, the, the sh- story I try to share with most people to comprehend that is two ways. So I have a two story place. So when I'm upstairs and let's say Natalie shows up for work and then she kicks on the coffee maker and she's making her coffee or whatever, getting, getting the uh, workspace ready for the day, I can smell it up my office. Mm-hmm. So that tells me odor doesn't fall in that sense that we think it does. Or when she's cleaning, if she's mopping the floors for whatever reason before the class starts and there's pine saw in the, in the thing, I smell that too. So what those scientists were able to show people was you can't use a blanket statement such as odor falls because odor moves and high volatile organic compounds, VOCs move very freely and they're lighter than the air, you know, so they go further, higher, and they're whatever. influenced by currents, yes, by temperature. Yep. yep. So yep. all of that was a good myth busting one. Mm. And then the other one that Nathan was sharing was the statement that they threw out all the time was, oh, the dogs are however many thousand times better than a human's nose. And then he brings up all the chemicals that, that the human smells better than a dog. Yeah, mm. that was something I found extremely fascinating. Yeah, I had yeah. no idea about that. Yeah. I, didn't, I didn't realize that. I had, I had no knowledge of that. Yeah, that's why I try to share a lot of those things that those individuals have and shared with me. When I don't get to lecture with them, I throw those bits in all the time because as the industry dog world, back to that inherited learning, we share things like it's the 11th commandment. Mm-hmm. You know, like all odor falls, uh, you know, dogs smell beef stew. And it turns out like Nathan showed, no, not really. Can they smell multiple things? Yes. Do they always smell the multiple things? No, they will also hone in just like we do on the strongest thing. Mm-hmm. And those other things become background noise. And then the minute you add a reinforcer to that whatever that dog is. And the funny part too is you don't know which one of those chemicals is strongest to that dog. Yeah. Mm. So then you're reinforcing. You don't know at all which one is the reinforcing, what you, which you're reinforcing for. 
until you start later down the line separating these things out. Okay. I showed that as a color spectrum where on my presentation where if you just have a mix of colors, like it was just, I think it was colored chalks that had been thrown yeah. up into the air and a still photograph is how do you know which color the dog selected in, yeah. that, in that instance? And that's yeah. something that does frustrate me as well, especially when I see people doing it wrong and inconsiderate of mm-hmm. how to teach and the specifications around learning phase when yeah. dogs are learning and they're in the primary basis of it and they just don't have enough consideration or enough science in the background. They just get to work, they start doing things and suddenly you discover that this dog doesn't actually know what it's doing. It's just offering up a behaviour yeah. on something that it thinks was right. And the dog was right. Yeah. The dog is in the situation where you've put it in and the dog is right. Yeah. That is a frustrating part of the background that I've seen people working in as well. I haven't been in the army. I self-confess that everywhere I go. Mm -hmm. I've never told anybody anything different. I've never been blown up. I've never been in those situations. But I could imagine it Mm -hmm. and it terrifies me to think of young men or men or women in those agencies who are out there and my work could put them in jeopardy, Mm -hmm. you know, because EDD Mm -hmm. is the blue chip. Oh, yeah. That's the highest. There's a lot of detection work that's really important, and it is important. Drugs are important too, I've got to say. Mm-hmm. you know, the narcotics We have side. a saying, you miss drugs, they get high. You miss bombs, they die. Exactly. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And that terrifies me. It worries me for all of those young men and women. Like it really does. It just mm-hmm. scares the shit out of me. And I've been an EDD handler on site. I didn't have anyone shooting at me while it was happening. I didn't have to mind where I stepped. I didn't have to worry about who walked up to me or what car came over to me. So I didn't have to deal with any of that. Mm -hmm. You know, the guys that leave the country and go into other foreign spaces, they have to consider all of that, Mm -hmm. all of that. And I would never want to be responsible for being a part of that dog's training or that handler's training. And But we we have to accept that dogs aren't perfect. They're not. And and neither neither are humans. And people are getting better at disguising and thinking their way through Mm -hmm. how to block odor and how to create. They even shared some of that. They were sharing about how, especially vehicles these days, you know, it's it's much more airtight. Yep. You know, the dog will... The vapor pressure from odor and so forth, yeah. If it's available... They'll give you an indication. Yep. If it's not available, I mean. How can you? Exactly. Hmm. How can you indicate to something that's not present? Mm -hmm. I've been on tracks with a guy, you know, as a cop, you know, being in the backup role and we're tracking. The handler's working his dog. I'm behind doing whatever. And watch the dog that we find out minutes later was in like two feet of the guy, but the wind is going the other direction. Mm. So. The dog doesn't pick up, so we pass him within feet. He perfectly perfectly stays still. Dog gets down far enough, hooks back, and then takes us right back to it just because of how the wind was. So it shows you, and it, and it is scary. You know, I've like I said, I've had those. How did I survive that? If that was really a guy with bad intentions, mm. could have taken us both out no problem because he's laying in wait. Here's the dog. Here's people coming. All the brush and stuff moving. Just wasn't armed or just didn't want to take that chance that night. On the NDTF course, where they get a very, very, very quick exposure to scent, mm-hmm. I've got a smoke machine that I use, and I've seen See, that you, yeah. you use the same thing. I use it, and I know it's just about air currents. Per, it's about air currents, and it's about perception. So it gives them an idea of what yeah, actually happens. It's a so great they can visual, see a visual tool. spectrum. When you ignite it in the room, and then when you open a door, and you see the difference of how it will envelope a person, and then you open a door, and it won't go anywhere near them, and people go, "Holy shit!" 
you know, I wouldn't have considered that. And I said, well, you got to understand the room is like a lung mm-hmm. and it's not going to behave the way you want it to just because you want it to. Mm-hmm. You know, and I said, this is a sexy thing about working in tubes and everything is that you can control your environments, but it's all kindergarten. It's not yeah. real. You know, unless it's a lab and unless that's the environment that the dog will never go out of, this is just baby work for babies and then it's got to extend beyond that because if you don't go into the real environments or as close to mimic what you're going to go into, you're setting the dog up for immediate failure. But like you said, Cam, that sort of thing, I find that fucking (laughs) fascinating. Yeah, The frustration side apart, I found everything they were saying. Like it was just... It was like a songbird in my ear. Yeah, I was thinking, that was my next question was, how, what did you take away? I what loved did you it, like? yeah. loved it. It was just nerdy stuff that I, you know, <laughs> it was just taking me to an extra level. Yeah. And some of it would confirm things that I've read and seen before and otherwise new sciences or incrementally different. It's not like it's worlds above. It's just more that it's heading in a better direction or a new consideration as a end user that you wouldn't mm-hmm. think about. But then you see the scientific community that are all it's all peer reviewed work, yeah, and they're all agreeing on it. And then you think, wow, that's something I've got to take away and add to my database now. Yeah, there, there were some cool things that like just cool data points that I can work into things when I explain to people. Yeah. Like I've always have a thing, you know, no training is better than bad training. <laughs> and you know the fact that that dog recalled the ten odors twelve months later, yeah, like without having done any, like just those kinds of things. You know, like yeah. if you don't have access to the training aids, like just don't do it. Like, yeah have that novel loader, keep him hunting, keep yeah. him remembering what detection is. But if you don't have the things, don't go for a lesser version, don't use a shitty version. Just little things like that were very mm. interesting. The, the fact that they had that dog on more than 40 odors yeah, it was cool, as well, huh? I was like, oh, yeah. my God, keep yeah. that a secret. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, Not and, now. <laughs> and, and it's funny you bring up the memory part where, you know, they brought up how the dogs years later still were hitting the odors. I share that frequently too because – a lot of times canine handlers doing detection, set up detection training, almost in a way just to keep the dog fresh on the odors. And I'm like, you need to set up training with a purpose. Mm. The purpose should be challenging the dog through different types of search environments. Search environments you're going to face. Stop putting highs three inches from the surface. Stop making it just a checklist to like, oh, we did, let's say it's drug dog. We did cocaine today, heroin and meth, whatever. Because you're, you're just training for memory purposes in a sense. Versus going, I may put nothing out today. I may put something out, but I'm going to make it a challenge. I need to see what my dog does when I have it on something that's like three meters high. Mm. You know, what does the dog do? What, do I, what does it do when it's you know, a, a light picture in the ceiling? Yes. Yeah. I, I want to see these things. No, we don't We don't set it up for that way. We set it up for, hey, let's go run this. Go put it out real quick. Throw it in a car. Stick it in the door jam. Okay, run the dogs. And then we wonder why we have the problems on an operational setting or we, like in your case, we might miss or whatever. Uh, there's a number of factors involved in that, I know. But my thing is we need to embrace, and I've said this all the time on my podcast too, we need to embrace failure. We need to stop going into training with, I need to win. I need to fail. I, I need to see where my weakness is at. And the sooner that you can let go as a person about failure, that it's okay to fail, and just accept it and and go, okay, I'm cool with it. If this doesn't go the way I expected, then I need to see where my gap's at. I need to fix it. Yeah. Well, that's what Nathan said. He said, I fail 90% of the time. Exactly. You're mm. right. And as a scientist, that's exactly what he said. He goes, you know, I'm used to being wrong. Yeah. You know, I fail more than I'm right. But it takes all those failures to find where the right answer was. Yeah. And I, th- you know, as humans, it's hard for us to fail. Then add a dog that we love. 
into the mix mm. and we don't want to see them fail. That's the hard part. Yeah. That's it's the, the extension of part. us, right? Yes. It, yeah. it, it, it's the sharing. Like, I love this thing. I want to do well with it. Or it's the ego extension of me. If this thing doesn't perform well, it reflects upon me. Yeah. Versus just letting go. One of the, like I was telling you earlier today too, Glenn, was when I finally, with my newer dog right now, I've done it before, but I got to do it now with this new dog. I let go of, I don't care if we fail this search. If we don't find it, we don't find it. Because then I need to figure out why. Mm. But it's no longer like, it doesn't bother me. In fact, I almost embrace it. I want to see if we fail. But how I handle them now is I'm cool. I am so much more relaxed because I love his little cute ass anyway. You know, mm. he's a little spaniel. He's happy-go-lucky. I can't be mad. But by relaxing and letting go of that fear of failure allows me to actually succeed better because mm. the pressure's off. I think that is institutional problems as well. Like you always want to be appear to be doing well and mm -hmm. you're like, you want to, people always want to go home with the, like, Oh, it was a good day. Everything yeah. went well. Example I always use in this same conversation is I used to swim a lot. Whenever it was do your own PT at work, I'd, mm -hmm. I'd swim and people, you know, Oh, you like to swim. I was like, actually I fucking hate swimming and I suck at it. Yeah. And that's why I have to do it yep. because that's my weakness. Yeah. And when I'm given the opportunity to just go train, whatever you want to do, like that's what I have to do. And in 2006, I had a parachute malfunction in on a water jump and had to swim for six hours. Really? And that day I was like fucking happy that I'd put yep. in the work. Hell yeah. And, and I think that's one of the things is like, you know, for the most part, you just want the easy run, just yep. do it, get it done. And that performance of like, you know, I don't want this to go badly in front of anyone. Yeah. But like, I think that you can completely reframe that by saying, I do want this to go badly or not go badly, but I am pushing this to failure to find yeah. out where failure is. Yeah. And I'm not going to do that all the time because that would be stupid. I'm going to do it like 20% of the time. Correct. I'm trying to achieve that like classic learning phase where yep. I want I want 80% success and I want 20% failure so that I can continue to push out like where that failure point is and I yep. can keep going forward like that. But I think that is often, you know, in the logbook that looks bad, right? And, and it makes for a shitty social media video, right? And so like that's the Ooh, issue with it nice. all. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. and, and, yeah. and I think we've discussed that quite a bit on the podcast in dog in the dog spaces and I'm guilty of it as well. Like very few, very rarely do you post the fuck ups Yeah, because you just know that you're opening yourself to criticism and blah, blah, blah. And people but, will. But I love that. No, I know. And, and it's the right thing to do, but, sure. but it is, it's still hard to do. Yep. And when somebody else is showing them killing it, mm -hmm. it doesn't seem wise nope. to post you fucking it up. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. but like Glenn brought up one of the things that had a profound, well, first I'll share the saying that I told him that, I heard Mike Tyson say on uh, Joe Rogan's podcast, which mm. was do what you hate to do, but do it like you love it. Mm. Cause that helps you get over that, you know, yeah, it sucks. I don't like doing if, if I'm doing, let's say I'll, I'll bring it back to my world detection dogs. I hate doing containers, whatever, you know, packages, et cetera, because my dog always fucks with them, knocks them around, do whatever. Okay. Let's do it. Like I love it. Let's figure this out. Let's get better at it instead of avoiding it. Mm. What I learned when I had, so I was kind of riffing it with someone's dog. They brought a dog over for detection. I was running it and I was perplexed with what the dog was showing me. So I just started going through my head. I'm trying this, trying that. And she was just sitting there with the biggest smile on her face. And I, as I got done, I was like, she's like, that was the best ever. And I was like, what? I said, I was struggling my ass off the entire time trying to figure this out. She goes, 
I learned so much more watching you problem solve your way through that, mm. you know, that training session and just being in your own head and watching you figure it out. And then you kind of talking to me as you were trying things than I ever would watching you do it right. Yeah. But see, I love the humility of watching a good trainer doing that because I learn from them when I yeah. see that as well. It made me realize when I was a younger guy and even still to this day that this person behind it is human and they fail and things don't go right because I think the social media aspect sets people up yeah. to ultimately fail because they never see things going wrong. Yeah. And there are so many people that I know, again, you know, reaching out to, to my network of students that talk to me where they say, look, I tried this. I just don't know what to do. Am I, am I a failure? Am I not getting it right? What do I need to do? Who do I need to speak to? And they're already so spun up about it. And again, at the conference, I gave an example of the outpouring of emotions at the end of the day. And some of those reasons are because they don't feel adequate enough because they've seen people their age, older, younger on YouTube who are showing the artificial picture that everything is going perfect and nothing ever goes wrong. So when they can't replicate that, and I said, you've just been in it for a pinch, yeah, just a pinch. You've only been here for a week and you've already got like an abundance of things to do. Do you really feel that I expect you to be perfect at this role just because there are social media pressures? Mm -hmm. It's not just social media. It's the pressure they put on themselves as well. You know, it's not just social media. But I do respect and admire when people show the work. You know, it's kind of like a math teacher if they say, well, you've solved it but where is the work? Mm -hmm. How do I know that you just didn't copy it off the person sitting next to you? How did you find this How did you work that math problem out? Where where was your formula as you went through it? You know, this, this, and this. Where where is the scribble and where is the, you know, like crossing the numbers out? And I like to see that in dog trainers too. I like to see them when they've hashed something out and they've gone, no, that's not right. Ha, Eureka, I found the answer. Mm -hmm. Here it is. And this is how to avoid doing it. Don't get me wrong. I love the show as well. Mm -hmm. You know, I love to see the glossy stuff. Sure. It's pretty and and Pat's right. You know, a lot of people, you know, like if you're going to compete with the clown show, sometimes you have to be a clown, Yeah, you know, and, but. <laughs> or a misinformed odor one. <laughs> the nice thing is, and the different thing is, it's actually unique. It cuts a different path. Yeah. And I think that most people, most revered people are people who are vulnerable. They're not afraid to show that vulnerability of, you know, it doesn't always go right. And here's what to expect. Not only does it allow people to see what happens, but it also encompasses a hell of a lot more appreciation to say, hey, man, you're human. Even you get things wrong sometimes. That means I'm allowed to as well. It also shows me where it went wrong and how to avoid it happening Mm -hmm. if it happens to me. So you get familiarity of what happens in those certain scenes. Mm -hmm. Yep, absolutely. This is great information, you know, for those that are listening to – Seek out those trainers who are willing to share that information with you. Their openness to like, hey, I don't have all the answers. Here's what I can do. Here's where, here's my, I have successes and I also have failures. You know, my goal is to just get better. We did talk about a phenomenon that does happen and, and is frequent. And I think Andrew Huberman talked about it. It was somebody in one of those podcasts anyway, and I'm. it's a bit remiss of me not to remember who said it. However, I have mentioned it on this show before, but it's still worth bringing up because of that conversation that we just had, where some people who get to such high pragmatic or academic levels, they forget what it was like to start and where they started from. Mm-hmm. So they're at now at a realm where all of the work that they previously did is 
it's not relevant to them anymore because they're not at that level of having to think or struggle at that point. So when beginners ask them the question and say, how would I do this? The answer often is, well, it's easy. Mm-hmm. And be, and to them it is because they're at a peer group. They understand it fundamentally, but they forgot about the work. They understand the answer now, but they forgot about the work that gets in of there. Course. Not always. And I know that this is a I'm, – I'm not trying to say that this is the only way that it comes to it, but there is a lot of times – and I've been guilty of it myself where people have said – especially in aggression work and how to deal this. When I've looked at a problem, I said, oh, it's easy. And the people started crying, you know, not because they were relieved because Mm -hmm. they were frustrated that I said that. And it was the wrong answer for them at the time because to them it was incredibly frustrating. It was incredibly unnerving and it was insulting for me to say it's easy. They felt like I made them feel like a piece of shit. The right word, simple. I found this the other week when I was getting people ready for the PSA trial and um, demoing the PDC. I said it, I, I fucked up twice and I said, look, it's a really easy test, you know. Yeah. And then, yeah, you look at people who have been working their ass off to sort of get their difficult dog ready, you know, and I, and then I had to pull myself up and I said, hang on, no, it actually has the capacity to be a very difficult test. It's a simple test. It's not simple to pass. The yeah. things that are being assessed are simple. But the range of difficulty in there, you know, that's a huge spectrum. Mm. With me and my dog, I can call him out of the car and I can demo it to you right now and I could, like, demonstrate a pass. No problem. It's easy for us. But that that same test with a dog that's got a ton of aggression and sort of weird drives, you know, all those sorts of things, mm-hmm. it's still the same test. The test is simple. But for you, it could be fucking difficult. And it would be just as difficult for me given that dog, yeah. right? It would still be the same simple test. And I think mm-hmm. that's the word that I use now in that. Like I said the wrong thing a couple of times and I had to readdress it myself and say, this is a simple process. It might be very difficult to do given the constraints that you're in, but the process remains simple nonetheless. Yeah. It's strange how language can be such a barrier sometimes, oh, isn't oh, it? Yeah. You can mm. you can fucking put people off by saying the wrong word. Yeah. Like, I think as all of us as teachers, you, that's one of the things that I spend, you know, I won't say as much time as I, as researching dog work and making sure I'm up to date on that, but certainly I put a lot of time into choosing the right words Yeah, because yeah. you can lose, you, dude, you can piss people off and lose them oh, yeah. with just a poor choice of words. Or, you know, you can describe something per- perfectly adequately to nine out of 10 people, but mm-hmm. that 10th motherfucker needs a whole yep. different set of oh, words. Yeah. Right? For sure. Yeah. It's that, yeah. it's that learning curve. And, you, and what you guys are talking about that, uh, person going further PDC or like the first person going through their detection trial, that other video that we were watching earlier today too, the dog smelling the stress. Oh, I'm glad you brought that up. I wanted to bring that into the conversation. Yeah. The stress or happiness uh, of, of human scent. So what they did was they, they collected the scent samples off the humans, both stressed humans and uh, happy humans. And what they did was they put two people in a room. They're just sitting in a chair, completely ignoring the dog in the space. So when the dog comes to the space, in the middle of the room is the little dish with the scent sample in it. So the dog comes up, smells it. And it was amazing to watch the dogs when they would smell the stressed human, like back up, try to hide under the chair, have go to the opposite side of the room, room, avoid the human altogether. And then when they would smell the happy scent, the dog would be like climbing the person who's trying to ignore them on the chair, wagging their tail, like, come engage with me. Let's do something. You're happy. Mm. Yeah. The dogs immediately wagged their tail as soon as they smelt the odor and then ran to the person. I'd love to see control on that. Do you think that's learned or is that inherent to dogs? 
there's a significant aspect that that's learned from puppyhood. Yeah. yeah. So like, I would love to see a control dog that's never met a person. Yeah. And, and what does that? Yeah. Does what, what nature does kick in? To? Yeah. Mm. Is that something that dogs are hardwired to know and feel, or is that? Just like familiarity because stressed people, mm. I don't like being around. Them. Yeah. So the point they were making was the dogs were empathetic to us too. Mm. So I use that that analogy or that video as an example for those when they're going to competition or going to certification. Why did my dog do that? I was said, I don't understand because you are acting weird. Yeah, You're stressed. Yeah. And the dogs sense that. And that empathy that that dog has with you is manifesting itself in this emotional way for the dog, yeah. which is... They're like, what is wrong with you, mom or dad? You know, why are you acting all this way? So now you're seeing anomalies that you don't normally see because when you trained, you you weren't in those conditions. Yeah. Which is a, a good point to I bring up is I sometimes I stress people out on purpose. That yeah, sometimes yeah, I yeah. get I get uh misunderstood when I when I kind of like put pressure on somebody during a search. I'm doing it because I want to see what their reaction is. Yeah. And two, put the dog through the the handler being like, why is this guy being a jerk to me? Or why is he pushing so much pressure on me? Yeah, so. totally. And that relates to like in PSA, the decoys doing that to people as well. We have to do it in training. We have to like bullshit with you and yeah, like try and throw you so that mm-hmm. when that happens on the field, even if you're not thrown, the dog can be by the reactions that you yeah. give. But it reminds me, I used to love, and I still do it whenever I get the opportunity, like when you're doing like tracking sort of work, one of my favorite things back in the army was you'd arrange for a runner, right? Like, yeah. and it's organized, you know who it's going to be, but you don't tell that person. Their boss knows everything's down yeah. and they get the like last minute brief. And it was one of my favorite things. I remember giving this brief one day to this guy and uh, it's like, mate, uh, I know it's last minute. Thanks for coming. He's one of the mechanics, right? Okay. Mate, thanks. I know it's last minute. Thanks for coming up. Don't worry. We sorted out from the other run. The ambulance is back. The medics are on station. Like it was a freak accident. Don't worry about it. That's why you're here and you're in. Yeah. And they're like, what do you mean it was a freak accident? Because like, <laughs> it, I, like they think they're replacing someone who got hurt. So you stress oh, the okay. fuck out of them. Okay. And then you're like, so you give them this terrible safety brief uh-huh. and imply that something just went wrong and they're the replacement for it. Uh-huh. And then tell them, okay, and now like this is your start point and we need you to lay a track and run it down here and the dog's going to find you in there <laughs> so that you can get some actual yeah. stress sent yeah. along mm. the way. Yeah. yeah. I used to love doing that to people yep. because you see them like, like, what the fuck happened? happened? Yeah. Or like it was just a minor muzzle failure. Like yeah, it'll be fine. No, it's not going to happen to you. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we would do not exactly the same thing. I, I did stuff where we make the people run and do heavy physical activity yeah. to really push their bodies to give off more scent out yeah. of it. The pores open up, the sweat glands are going because typically the person that's you're looking for has been running is attempting to evade yeah. if we were the law enforcement side of things. And that's what we want, you know, to kind of just, aspect of another another clue for the dog to use so yeah. like you said the stress the the body aspects that we put the dogs through the body chemistry changes these are all really good important things yeah, yeah. oh dear yeah. you know it's uh seven o'clock it's i yeah. i think it's time we finish up and yeah. get something to eat for yeah, yeah absolutely mm. well okay thanks yeah. for doing it man no. we've still got a lot of there's a lot of dog training to go we oh, haven't yeah. begun your seminar here yeah. in sydney Tell people where's all your stuff. How do they get in touch with you? Plug everything. All right. So the easy one is just FordK9.com. F-O-R-D-K number nine.com. On there now is we have our webinars, online classes. Actually, many of the instructors who taught, at least a third of them, I have 12 hours of video between Dr. Nathan Hall, Paula Tiedemann, Simon Prinz. That's all on the website now. So Fantastic. people who actually missed these lectures, I have recorded, you know, multiple hours of their lectures. 
Social media wise, it's just Cameron Ford K number nine on Facebook, Instagram. I haven't embraced the TikTok world full on yet. My mm-hmm. uh, trainer, Natalie, she created a Ford K nine TikTok, but we never use it. So I can't put anything there. And then now the biggest thing I try to do is, as you know, is the YouTube channel Ford K nine. I have right now probably close to 90 something videos on there. I hit various topics. I sometimes I'll bring up a, a touchy subject just to have a conversation Sometimes it's just gee whiz information that I knew people have sent us questions before and I'll answer those questions through the video format. Yep. So those are the main ones, the YouTube, the Instagram, Facebook, and then of course the website. So a lot of information my goal, as you guys know, is to share knowledge and share information. And those are my, my venues that I use to do that with. And the podcast talking sense. Yes. Canines talking sense, which you can find everywhere podcasts are out. I also video those now. So YouTube will have, at least the last five or six episodes are all now videoed and audio. So if you want to stream it just through your, you know, typical podcast or hop on YouTube and watch me interview the people, there's some stuff, sometimes by videoing it, we can share something on the screen or use a measurement size or whatever and say, you know, so it just gives a little other way to connect. And you're so fancy. There was a particular episode. I think it's worth mentioning with Bart Rogers and who else was in that episode? Craig Koshik. Craig Koshik. Yes. Yeah. That was absolutely yeah. riveting. I was just telling Cam while we were sitting down in the room the other day that I was driving from location to location. I was so riveted with the episode that I couldn't even remember the drive and I just literally got home and thought, holy shit, I can't even remember driving the car from one location to the other because it was such a good podcast episode. Yeah, it, it's one of my all-time favorites. Like yeah. I was telling you earlier today, my my favorites of my podcast have been episode seven with uh, – Dr. Brian Hare, the cognition one, and then the two episodes I've done with Bart and Craig, I think I called it Breed All About It was one of them. I don't remember the episode numbers off the top of my head, but if you see Bart Rogers and Craig Koshik, those are the episodes, and Craig is amazing. I know we were talked about you guys having him on there because he's just a plethora of knowledge when it comes to breeds, stuff that you're like, how does he know this? And I know you, like when you were sharing with Pat, how did the working Cocker Spaniel get its name and how the Springer Spaniel get its name? Mm. And he talks about that history. And those were the episodes where I just sat back and was, I was a listener, even though I was really interviewing him. There was times where Bart and I were just like, oh, who talks now? Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we were so enthralled and listening to him. They're the and, best. Yeah. Oh man. So yeah, I, for listeners who want to know more about breeds and their dogs, and if you're into the detection world and understanding certain things, that those are really good episodes. And I, I look forward to what you guys bring to him because it's not just the uh, sporting breeds, even though he's heavy into that. You know, he's, he runs Upland uh, Magazine and uh, has a few things that he does. He's just a great orator and speaker. And you just, you know, hearing him talk about whether it be Malinois or German Shepherds and the histories and the behind them, like why it did what it did and the genetic aspect. I sit back and like, in your head, where do you store <laughs> the Google information that's just embedded in there? I bet he could store more than 40 odors. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Hey, yes. Hey, before we close out, I just want to once again say what an absolute honor and privilege it was to spend time with such esteemed colleagues as yourself and the doctors that presented themselves over the weekend. And of course, my wife and Alison, who was talking about her dog food, where she's using insects as the protein. Very fascinating indeed. Mm-hmm. I also want to extend a lot of thanks to Quentin and yes. Andrew from Red Team, yes. who they have adopted me in as the redheaded stepchild of the group. 
But nonetheless, I've really enjoyed my time with them and it was great to spend time with Pat and the people from the various agencies and the people from the nose work group. All in all, it was just a really great three days. Brownie from Origin Canine, Tom Brown, Mm -hmm. it was great to meet him and, and connect with people that I've spoken to but never seen and it was just one of those... I think, you know, we've been missing it since COVID happened, but it was it was a really good dig and the venue was great. The food was exceptional. Mm-hmm. I found it exceptional anyway. I loved every everything I had. The rooms that we were talking in, everything was comfortable. It ran well. It was nice, the socialisation afterwards. So thank you, everybody who attended it and making it possible. And thanks, yeah. Cam, for coming all the way out. Yeah. I, I thank Andrew and Q for doing that. I thank yep. Becky for bringing me over, you for bringing me over for this seminar, Marco, who's having me come to the next one after this mm. one. So awesome to be able to do this. Obviously, this isn't the last time I'll be back in 2023. It looks like in your guys' wintertime, my summertime, the July, August timeframe. So everybody can stay tuned for as we get all that information over time yep. spread out. Those guys did, in a, all of those individuals, all of you guys have done an amazing job of taking care of me. Cause it's, it was work out of everybody. Andrew put in a lot of like getting all yeah, my flights did. lined up yep. and he went above and beyond on me than he did everybody else. So Andrew, if you're listening, thank you so much. It's yeah. an incredibly frustrating thing to put together a conference of that magnitude or oh, yeah. higher when you've got a lot of moving parts to deal with. Like Andrew put a very detailed email together and a lot of, he's very detailed orientated. He's a major in the army and you know, he's used to doing that sort of thing. So even I asked him questions. He said, mate, it's in the email I sent you. And I said, said, Andrew, just breathe and take it easy. And I said, it's very easy to get upset with these things because it's extremely important for you that goes well because you're the principal on this operation. But to other people, they've got lives and other things happening and they're, you know, like they'll forget and they'll remember. And the burden is really on them to remember, Mm. but also you just have to remember, you have to repeat it a few times. Oh, I had to ask him like three or four times (laughs) because it gets buried so far in my emails and I would try to search certain stuff. And I was like, I have no idea where it was. And thank God he was so patient for me with my sometimes repetitive questions like, where do I find that at? Yep. All right. What a wonderful circle jerk that was. Absolutely. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. <laughs> yeah. I, I feel very relieved right yes, now. We're all, <laughs> oh, I might go outside for a cigarette. Yes. And I don't even smoke. Thanks, Pat. <laughs> all right. That's it for another episode of the Canine Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, please like, rate, share, subscribe. Do that through whatever subscription service you download us from. Then go to one that you don't download us from and do it there as well. Yeah. If you want to support the show, the very best way to do that is when you're on the bus listening to the show, pull your AirPod out of your ear and put it into someone else's ear. Put your hand on their lap and say, have you heard about the canine paradigm? Well, why not just spark it up on your iPhone and hit the speaker button so yep. everybody can share in that bad Get boy? Get like an 80s style boombox. That's why probably not? the best way. Yep. And, do that and record in it onto an old retro tape yep. and go nuts. Yeah. So you could do all those things or you could jump into Patreon. Do both, really. Yep. In Patreon, a couple bucks a month gets you access to a whole giant backlog of extra episodes as well as a bunch of new cool stuff going forward. Ten bucks a month will get you like live Q&As and, you know, if you wanted to, you could buy me a yacht you're on a yacht now it was a lambo at one stage i don't really want a lambo if i'm honest what the fuck am i gonna do with a lambo (laughs) (laughs) everywhere well go yachting he goes swimming because he loves swimming so much yeah yeah yeah. Yeah, we'll dump him out at sea and get him to swim back to his yacht (laughs) we'll have a christmas party on it yeah okay get us a yacht yeah we could rent it out yeah maybe this could okay we could start a whole business i want the yacht yeah you guys go in the water during christmas 
Yeah. Wait, is weather different here? Yeah. yeah. Dude, Christmas is p- beach party time. Wow. It's boiling hot at Christmas. Like hot. This is yeah. so foreign to me. Yeah. yeah. It's the other side of the planet. Yeah, yeah. You have a white Christmas. We have a crispy one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Get in Patreon and get a t-shirt. Yes. Spring. Yeah. Jump in there. Yep. Rep cool merch. Look flash. Yep. Get a water bottle. Feel good. Uh, <laughs> what else? What's after that? Uh, if you want to get in contact with us, jump into the discussion group. That's probably the best place to group source information. There's like 9,000 people in there. You can ask what the dimensions of the box are. Yep. Or you could shoot us an email. We are info at the canonparadigm.com. Goodbye.